Welcome to Beyond Bite Wings, the business side of dentistry, brought to you by Edwards & Associates PC. Join us as we discuss how to build your dental practice, optimize your income, and plan for your future. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Edwards & Associates PC is not rendering legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information that is shared. At Edwards & Associates PC, our business is the business of dentistry. For help or more information, visit our website at enassociates.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Bite Wings. In today's episode, we will be talking about what factors to consider when selling to a DSO. Now, I know for a fact that this episode is going to be a popular one because of the word that I just said, DSO. Right, That's Robert? actually three words. <laughs> three, three words, yeah. The acronym. I should, I should have been more specific. The acronym DSO. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, the amount of times I hear this acronym on a weekly basis, it's just crazy. Yeah. How many times do you hear it? I mean, I hear it, for instance, a week ago, I had two calls on one day about it. Uh-huh. And- you know, we have, what, 450 or so dentists that we work with, so two on one day, that's kind of a lot. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And about a specific topic, yeah. I and mean, usually they'll call for like multiple things, but when it's about DSO, that conversation usually is a little longer than... Well, well, why are they calling? I mean, why are they calling specifically to ask questions about selling to a DSO? What's the driving factor? What's the one thing that they that prompts them to call? Honestly, the simple answer is money. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> it's money. <laughs> now, the thing, okay, so let's let's let our listeners know what a DSO is, basically. I mean, in, in, in a very general sense. In a very general sense. Hmm. It's a it's it's a management organization that runs a group of dental offices under one brand. Mm-hmm. I see. And they don't necessarily have to be dentists. The DSO owners do not have to be dentists. That's the reason there's so much, I guess, money involved in it. A lot of DSO owners are private equity groups, and a lot are actually dentists. So there's really kind of two different models. One is non-dental, mm-hmm. and, and the private equity people have, have decided, you know, look, we can make a good return on our money if we find a way to get into the service industry. And, and they can't own dental practices directly, so they operate them indirectly through DSOs. I see. And I'm assuming these investors are probably getting a better return from these service industries than some of the other traditional investments. And that's probably why they're so lucrative right now. Well, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of sad because a a dentist should typically take home at least a third of what he collects. Mm -hmm. So if you're collecting a million dollars, you should be taking home somewhere around 325 to 350, which is, you know, a great income. Okay, but the private equity groups don't require that much of a return, not a third. You know, what they're really looking for is somewhere between 12 and 15% return on their money. So it sort of moves in inversely. If I'm going to offer you 12% return on your money, then I can pay you much more for your practice than the entrepreneur that, that wants that 30% return. Mm. So that's why the multiples are so high and why they're offering so many dollars for the practices. I see. Now, 
the multiples. You, you actually mentioned another phrase there. Now, typically, a traditional buyer, they don't go off of multiples. They, no, they don't. They go off of more historical factors. I mean, the, the major one is collections, but the length of time and service, the length of the staff has been there, the age of the equipment and condition of the equipment, the type of patients you have. I mean, for instance, Medicaid on one end is not worth as much as fee-for-service. So it depends uh, to some degree on your demographics. It depends on the stability of the practice. If you've got a young practice that's growing, that's one model. If you've got a mature practice that's leveled out, that's a different model. And if you've got an older practice where the doctor is really kind of biding his time to retirement and it's actually declining a little bit each year, and we've seen all of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a third model. So it, it depends on a lot of factors. But with a DSO, it doesn't depend on... I shouldn't say this, but it, it probably doesn't depend on any of those factors. They're looking at one thing. And when I said multiple, the right question would be. Multiple of what? Right. And that's called EBITDA, E-B-I-D-T-A, earnings before income, T-B-A, yeah. <laughs> earnings before income, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. And a lot of doctors look at their financials. They think, well, that's my net income. Mm, no, it's not. <laughs> Especially for if you have a dental CPA that's doing your books, I guarantee you your net income is artificially depressed because you should be paying things through the practice that your CPA tells you to pay through the practice that really have nothing to do with the practice operation. Mm -hmm. A good example of that would be your automobile. You know, and, and a certain portion of your automobile would be deductible, not 100%, but mm -hmm. some of it would be mm -hmm. deductible. But when you go to calculate your EBITDA for purposes of selling a practice to a DSO, that's what we call an add back. That increases your net income because the buyer of your practice is not going to assume the liability for your automobile. If you're paying your kids through the practice, that's another thing. You know, the, the purchaser DSO not going to pay for your kids through the practice. So that's another add back. So when you look at, I mean, typically, like last week, I had a client that sent his financials to a DSO and they looked at it and I think it had about, showed about $62,000 net income. And he said, okay, you know, we'll pay you, I don't know how much it was, it was, you know, maybe <laughs> eight times that number, which was really not that much. Right. And, and I think our client was a little bit shocked that it was that low. And he told me about it and I said, well, I said, that's not your EBITDA. Let me calculate your EBITDA. So when I finished calculating it, if I recall correctly, it's about $325,000. Wow. Yeah. I see. So almost always, specifically, these people are using dental-specific CPAs to do their books. Their net income would be lower than their actual EBITDA. Absolutely. Yes. It wouldn't, wouldn't be anywhere close. In this case, it was, what, it was about 20% of wow. EBITDA. The net yeah. income is about 20% of EBITDA. Wow. But every case is different. You know, I mean, if, if you, and, and I wouldn't say, one thing you said is most of these people are probably using dental-specific CPAs. I don't agree with that. I think most of the doctors, most, the majority of the doctors out there, the dentists out there, are not using what I'd call a dental-specific CPA. I see. I mean, and that's a whole different gamut of issues right there if they're not using a dental-specific CPA because they're not utilizing certain advantages, some additional deductions that can help them on a year-to-year -year basis. But more than that, really a dental CPA, a dental-specific CPA really helps you in, in practice operations matters, not taxes or accounting, but it's practice operations. Right, right. I was talking to a doctor this morning about 
in PI numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, not everybody even knows what that is. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's something that even the doctor didn't know some of the information I gave him, which I was, I guess I was impressed with myself. I'll pat myself <laughs> on the back there. But I was also shocked that he didn't know the information. So, you know, it, it, you never know what, what a, a client knows or doesn't know. No, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, there's our value right there. Well, it was helpful. It was help, very helpful in that case. And actually, I encountered that again today with a different client. So mm, I see. Uh, yeah. Hot topic right now. I agree. <laughs> completely agree. So, you know, that gives a picture to our listeners on what a DSO is and why we have so many clients that reach out to us about it because of the money factor, right? They're offering the multiples of the EBITDA which almost always is higher than what a traditional buyer would be willing to pay. Yes, it is. Almost always. I mean, if it's not 100%, then 97 or 8% of the time, it's higher than what you would get under a traditional valuation method. And that's what prompts the phone call. It's the dollar signs. You know, that's what gets them to call us. Now, when they call us, then what's the title of this episode? (laughs) What factors to consider. What factors to consider. Right. So then when they call us, the first two questions I ask is, how long do you intend to work for this DSO? And a lot of them say, well, you know, I'm not planning on working for them. I want to, you know, go do something else. Mm, No, wrong answer. DSO won't be interested in buying you if you're going to walk away. Wow. Okay. So wait, you're telling me that the terms for a transaction between a DSO and a seller is different from what it would be from a seller and a regular buyer? Absolutely. You know, the DSO doesn't want anything to change. So they're going to, they may bring a doctor in, but they want several years to do that. They're going to require you to sign an agreement to work with them at least three years and possibly as long as five years. Three to five years. Three to five years. So for people that are close to retirement, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're in your 60s and you're ready to sell your practice, Probably don't sell it to a DSO because they're going to require that you stay on for another three to five years. Oh, my goodness. And if you don't, then the multiple they're going to pay you is going to go, it's going to drop. Ah, I see. Yeah. What about the people who are not towards the age of retirement? You know, that depends. If, If they're too young, then I see that the practice is still growing and they haven't maximized really their production or their, their, their growth. Okay, and so if they sold too early, they would really be cheating themselves out of a lot of dollars later on down the line. I see. So then that prompts me to the next question, which is this. Do you think the DSOs will be there forever? No. Okay. I I think pretty much everybody that's involved in the industry would agree with that. DSOs aren't going to be around forever. Well, let me rephrase that. The DSO merger and acquisition process that we're going through now, the consolidation process, isn't going to be as vigorous as it is now uh, forever. You know, three years ago, before the pandemic, I went to some DSO meetings, and at the time they were saying this merger and acquisition activity would probably continue for another, you know, five to seven years. And then we had the pandemic. And, and now this year, the DSO merger and acquisition activity has picked up to a level I've never seen before. I think they're trying to make up for lost time. <laughs> but also, it's very competitive, and that has even caused the DSOs to raise some of their multiples to make sure that you sell your practice to me instead of the next one that contacts you. So there's even more money on the table. 
But it still looks like that the DSO merger and acquisition activity at this level will continue for another maybe at least three years, more likely five to seven. So it's still five to seven years in my book. And and I may be, I don't think I'm too far off. I think that's what most of the law firms that are involved really say about it. And a lot of the DSOs themselves, the, the mergers and acquisition people in charge, pretty much I think they would tell you five years. I see, I see. So then, you know, if I'm a younger dentist who just got approached by a DSO, gave me a certain multiple of my EBITDA, which seems nice to me, but at the same time, you're right. Maybe the practice was only for open for a couple of years, and there's definitely potential for a higher growth just by myself. I would be in a dilemma where I'm like, okay, should I wait or if I wait too long? Well, and that's what I'm seeing a lot of times. People call us and they have this sense of urgency. Now, I think that's the fault, if I can use that word, uh, of the DSOs, because they want to create that sense of urgency. I mean, heck, if I'm trying to buy somebody's automobile or something, it's like, well, this thing's about to fall apart. You better get rid of it now. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you want to create that sense of urgency. And so they're saying, well, I don't know how much longer we can, you know, make these offers like this. But I will also tell you that the average multiple of EBITDA that's being offered today is maybe double what it was three years ago or four years ago. I see. And, and so for several reasons, one, it's getting more competitive, you know, and, and two, I think they're just trying to, to do a lot more in a shorter period of time. I see. Now, I remember you once also telling me that there's this other factor to consider when you're selling to a DSO, which is this, that even if you get offered a certain amount that may seem like an amazing dollar sign, a giant one, is it true that they're going to get the full amount all at once? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't recall having seen a, a DSO that would pay their their full offer up front. Mm. Actually, that's not true. I've seen one that, that I actually sold a practice to a DSO pre-pandemic, and they did pay full offer because the doctor, <laughs> funny story, if I can digress for a minute, <laughs> but the doctor had to sell. He had to. And now you talk about a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. I said, well, why do you have to sell? And he said, well, my wife is moving back to California. And she said, if I want to stay married, I need to move with her. So I've got to sell my practice. (laughs) (laughs) That does sound like an urgent matter. (laughs) Uh, But we were able to get him 100% of his prior year collections, which, you know, that's pretty unusual for a doctor that's going to actually walk away from a practice. Right. But it was a DSO that paid that. That's the only instance I've seen where someone walked away. In the great majority of the cases, and all but that one, you're going to get a big offer in terms of dollars, but it's not going to all be up front. They have what's called rollover equity, and they want you to roll over somewhere maybe as little as 20%. I think the most common number I see is 30%, with a few as high as 40%. They want you to roll that over into the DSO, and the way they they tempt people with that is they, 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 they sell it by saying, look, you know, we're going to have another equity event in two years. And if you roll over your 40%, you're probably going to get double the amount that we would have paid you. So if you get offered, let's say, let's put real numbers on it. Mm-hmm. Let's say you get offered $2 million for your practice. Okay. They're going to give you a million two. You're going to roll over your, your 800,000. The 20%. Yep. Wait, 40%. 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40 million. 40%. We're CPAs. We can <laughs> do these calculations. Uh, so you're going to, in this case, you roll over 40%, but they're going to tell you that that 800,000 you roll over may be worth another 2 million in three years. 
because they'll have another equity event. And it's, it's sort of general knowledge that the larger your EBITDA is, the larger the multiple that you'll get for your practice. So the more practices these DSOs can put together and build up that EBITDA combined, then they're going to get a bigger offer down the road. But I always use the analogy of musical chairs. I think, you know, they're, it's not mathematically feasible for everybody that's, that's telling this story to actually have that second equity event in two years. There aren't that many other bigger DSOs out there to buy up all these smaller ones for that equity event. So some people are going to be left standing without a chair to sit in. And everybody knows that's coming. That's why they say, yeah, this will probably continue for another, you know, five, three, five, seven years. I everybody see. knows it's coming. The question is, when's it going to happen? And, and do nobody we know? wants to be left standing. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it makes me nervous for the clients to have that rollover equity when it's not worth anything if they can't put together another equity event. And I say it's not worth anything. It's, it's really not because you're not in control of that entity. It, it's, it's not a publicly held company. So you can't go sell that to your friend or your neighbor or anybody else. So you're really at the mercy of the DSO owners. You know, they could buy you out if they wanted to, but they don't have to. You know, there's nothing to motivate them to buy you out. So if you are considering selling to a DSO, that rollover equity percentage per your advice should be as small as possible. Should be as small as possible, but let's go back to the reason everybody calls in the first place. That's money, right? So it's a greed factor. Everybody wants as much as they can get for their practice. And the way some clients justify it is, they say, okay, look, even after rolling over 30%, I'm still gonna get what I would have gotten if I'd sold to another individual dentist. So anything after that is gravy. So if I roll this 30% over, if it's worthless in five years, I still got what I would have gotten if I'd sold to another doctor. So they justify it that way. Mm, makes sense. All right. So we've covered the age factor to consider when selling to a DSO. We've covered the whole, okay, are, are you actually going to get the money that they're offering? If not, would you be happy with the percentage that you're actually going to get? And then with the rollover equity. Now you did mention that if you are planning on selling to a DSO, you would most likely be asked to stay on for three to five years at least. Yes. Now, what factors regarding that term might our potential sellers want to consider? You know, it varies from deal to deal. I'll give you an example. I had a client that was offered $2 million for his practice. His collections were about 800000 Okay, but he was only going to be offered seven fifty up front and two fifty a year for five years. Mm. And only the two fifty for each of those five years subsequent to closing, if his collections increased by ten percent. That's a huge increase. Yeah. So that means, you know, in five years he'd have to increase over fifty percent because it's compounded each year. So I didn't think that was feasible. I didn't think that was doable. And so we passed on that deal. But on the front end, it sounds very attractive. People say, wow, $2 million for a, you know, right. practice collecting 800000 That's fabulous. Who right. Who's that DSO? Let me talk to them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> no, seriously, I agree. I mean, if you had that capability of raising, I mean, having a 10% growth year over year, and you have to do that for five years, I mean, why not implement it now? 
Well, yeah. I mean, my advice would be if you can achieve that kind of growth for five years, do it and then sell it to mm-hmm. the DSO because then you'll get a whole lot more for the practice. I see. Yeah. No, absolutely. That makes no, that makes complete sense. You know, but there's a lot of factors involved. And just like with any transition, whether it's with an individual doctor or a private equity group or a DSO owned by doctors, you've got to consider really all the factors. But I start out looking at really an analysis of the client's age and where the practice is and where they really want to go. I mean, I've, I've got some doctors that, you know, we used to always hear the complaint of, hey, you know, I was trained to do clinical work not clerical work. I can't run a business. I just want to see patients. Mm-hmm. You know, what can I, okay, well, you know, a DSO can fill that void for you. You know, if, if all you want to do is see patients and continue work, the DSO can manage the practice for you. So, so that's, you know, that's one scenario that works well. It's a win-win situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's the priority that the doctor has, case in point, I have a female doctor right now that, that, you know, wanted to spend more time with her family and wanted to cut down from four days a week to two. I say, great, you know, let's see if the DSO can bring in another doctor for the other two days and, and buy your practice. And so that's the route we're going. Oh, I see. That makes sense. I mean, I would think that the DSO may not be too happy with that because the goal is, no, keep everything the same. If you're going to reduce your number of hours, that's going to affect the bottom line. But I guess it's all about the negotiation. Well, no, it's all about the numbers, <laughs> really. <laughs> and that wouldn't necessarily affect the bottom line because when they buy the practice, then the seller is going to get paid a percentage of production. So if she's cutting down her time from four days to two days, she'll get paid, in theory, half of what she's been paid before. So you bring in a new doctor to fill those other two days. It's probably somebody that they already have working at another practice. I see. So when they bring that doctor over, okay, he's really, you're just paying him really what you were previously paying her or what she was paying herself. I see. Uh, So the numbers, it's all about the numbers. Okay. You know, and, and, and if you can continue to grow the practice, which is everybody's goal and operate it more efficiently, which is the DSO's goal, then it's going to gross more than it was or net more than it was. Mm-hmm. and be more valuable in the long term. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. That actually brings me to this other question that I get asked by clients a lot, which is this. A lot of times, let's say they're currently at a place where they're considering selling to a DSO. They come to me and ask me, hey, Ash, um, should I increase my salary right now before selling? That way, after selling it, you know, I continue to make that because I'm afraid they may just agree to what I'm currently paying myself <laughs> after I make the deal. Imagine that. <laughs> no, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and I've got really two different examples to, to talk about. Whatever you pay yourself before you sell to the DSO is kind of irrelevant because they're going to add that back 100% and then pay you a percentage of your production. So, I mean, you could give yourself a raise. That's not going to affect EBITDA. You would think it does, but it's not because they're going to adjust that out you know, going forward. But what does affect EBITDA is, let's say you gave your staff raises. And that's usually one of the questions the DSO will ask, have you given any raises in the last six months? You know, okay, because they, you know, if you have, well, then they may drop their their offer mm. because they're looking at EBITDA uh, from historical numbers. And they're thinking, okay, this isn't what it's going to be going forward because you just gave them a raise. Mm. So it's not reflected in the historical numbers. We've got to subtract that out going forward. So be careful in increasing overhead mm-hmm. because that will decrease your EBITDA, mm-hmm. which decreases the value of your practice to a DSO. I see. And that makes sense from a numbers perspective. But from a management perspective, especially these days, you know, when 
You have a lot of employees that are basically saying, hey, I'm getting offered more money somewhere else. They're in this bind of sorts where they have to say, regardless of whether they don't want to or not, they're afraid that their valuable employees are going to leave if they don't do that. And and I've seen two DSO deals fall apart this year for that very reason, because the DSOs, one of them was pretty astute. The other one, I think, was kind of out on a limb anyway. But what happened in both cases was they got close to closing and they came back. And because of inflation and because of the increase in interest rates this year, and and this was back in April, which it's even worse now. Here we are at the end of June. And they said, we don't think we are going to be able to operate your practice for the same level of profitability that you've been doing historically. So we're going to have to drop, drop our offer. And in both cases, the the seller said, take a hike. <laughs> so, they're, so they're still in there, you know, still right. doing their own work I you see, know, and I see. paying themselves. But yeah, you're right. To the extent that it's going to be more costly to operate a practice, then your overhead's going to go up, your EBITDA goes down, so your offer from a DSO goes down. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a way to counter that? Maybe, you know, increase, give them pay raises, but reduce expenses in other areas. Well, sure, because it, it's it's bottom line. So if you increase one expense, decrease another expense, that's fine. You know, again, I hate to tell all these war stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they love these stories, by the way. But we had a client who was considering selling to a DSO. And basically, I mean, he just, well, here's what he did. He, 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 he quit paying some things through the practice. Um, oh. I mean, for instance, he, he terminated his 401k profit sharing plan. Oh, my goodness. Because he was funding, I don't know how much a year, maybe... 70 or 80,000 a year. Uh-huh. Okay, well, if if you're getting five times multiple on EBITDA or more, let's say five, okay, and you're going to save 70,000 a year, that's $350,000 mm-hmm. in increase in your sale price mm-hmm. by terminating your retirement plan. Mm-hmm. So that's what he did. Wow, okay. He had all the employees just take their money and roll it out to their self-directed IRAs, so they didn't pay taxes on it. No Mm -hmm. big deal. They still have that money, but they're not getting any new money because he wanted to save on overhead. Now, that's brilliant. That's actually a great way to go about it. And honestly, a lot of times, employees don't really care if that portion's there or not. To them, at least from what I've heard from my clients, they value the compensation pieces that they can see in front of them. They value today's dollars. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But as a financial planner, that's not something I can really condone without at least bringing it up and mentioning it to the. Right. Because it, right. it really, I mean, how are you ever going to become financially independent mm-hmm. if you don't fund a tax deferred retirement plan? Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. No, I agree. So those were some excellent factors to consider, and I, I, I guarantee you that a lot of our listeners weren't aware at least of one or two of the ones that we mentioned. Well, and the one big thing that we haven't even touched on yet is taxes. Yes. So when you have a, a, a DSO that's going to offer you all this money, you know, when you're seeing all these dollar signs, remember the taxes aren't far behind. <laughs> <laughs> and the majority of the taxes will be 20%. It's going to be capital gains on the goodwill allocation, but you're still going to have some ordinary income. But, you know, roughly you can assume that you're going to pay somewhere between probably around 24% as a, of a blended rate on taxes of your sale price. Now, you don't pay taxes on the rollover equity. You only pay taxes on the cash you're getting up front. Makes sense. But if you get whatever cash up front, first thing you have to do is pay off any outstanding debts. Next thing you have to do is pay the taxes. Mm-hmm. And then look at that number that's left. How much are you going to walk away with? Right. I mean, I've seen a guy that sold his practice for $2 million that walked away with 
a little bit less than 200,000. Oh my goodness. So is that really worth it? I mean, you're not gonna be financially independent if you walk Mm -hmm. away from your practice of $200,000 and you're in your, I think he was in his early Mm fifties. So, you know, you gotta have plan B. What are you gonna do for the next 15 years to become financially independent? Right, that makes sense. And yes, that's an excellent, excellent point. So do also look at your debts, your list of your liabilities before you consider that. Yes. So roughly you're saying whatever money you receive, pay off your debts and then set aside one fourth of that remaining money. And then that final piece is what you're actually going to walk away with. That's pretty much pretty accurate. That's a, that's a good estimation. Mm. That's not even a word. (laughs) Well, it will be from now on. You guys heard it for the first time on on by wings. All right. Well, those are a lot of things to consider in selling to a DSO. And and I just want people to stop, you know, once they hear the dollars, stop and think about it. Is it really worth it? And hire your advisor to analyze it and give you a really a definitive answer. But but not just give you an answer, but be able to explain it to you. Right. 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 Absolutely. I mean, take everything into consideration. And then if you still think it's a good deal, do it. But if you think, okay, I'm going to get $4 million and then you're going to end up walking away at 200000 mm, no, maybe not. Right, right. Absolutely. No, great tips and great factors to definitely consider before selling to a DSO. Thank you to all our listeners for listening. It Hopefully this was a fruitful episode for you guys. Thank you again, Robert, for sharing knowledge with me and the listeners. And if you guys have further questions regarding DSOs, Oh, Robert, did you have something to say? No, not really. I just wanted you to be sure that you mentioned this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was going to get to it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so related to DSOs or anything, any, any question, if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach us at info at eandassociates.com. And one other announcement that I wanted to make before we sign off is that we are currently reviewing associate agreements for free for our recently graduating students from dental schools. Again, you guys can also reach out to us at info at eandassociates.com or feel free to reach us at our office phone number, which is 972-267-9191. I'm glad you remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I had to. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to Beyond Bite Wings on your favorite podcast platform. For more info, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or reach out to us on our website. You can also shoot us an email at info at eandassociates.com.